out of Philly, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from Palm Beach Atlantic University. So the Southern Baptists, they seem to be completely obsessed with Thomas Aquinas these days. Of all the dead theologians that one could worship, I, I, I mean, I mean, venerate. Of all the dead theologians that one could flock towards, the Baptists are all about the dumb ox right now. But what exactly is Reformed Thomism? Does Reformed Thomism offer a biblical view of salvation? In today's episode, I've got Owen Strachan on to answer these questions and more. If you'd like to support the show, you could donate money to my Patreon account or my Ko-fi account. If you have questions or topics that you'd like to hear on the show, you could send me a message at rtmullins.com. Well, ready or not, here is Owen and I chatting about Reformed Thomism. Enjoy. All right, so today we are talking about the rise of Thomism among contemporary evangelicals. So I'm joined by Owen Strachan. So Owen, when you when did you first notice evangelicals becoming fascinated with Thomas Aquinas and just Thomism in general? I'm not entirely sure because Thomism snuck up on a lot of us. It it came over us like an unexpected spring storm. It, it's really weird, Ryan, because you and I were at Trinity together about. 12 to 14 years ago or something like that. And um, there was no hint of this. That was the middle of the young, restless, reformed heyday, Mm -hmm. as it's often called. And that had the juice. That movement had the momentum. And there was no lingering sense that I had, at least, of any ecumenical push. It turns out, though, that if you were paying a lot of attention, if you were following the so-called rise of the great tradition hermeneutic in the seminaries, which was present in that time. But I wasn't in early church history, for example, uh, in those years, and so I I didn't see it, as I'm guessing some did. Um, But if you were following that trajectory, and if you were following, I think, theological interpretation of Scripture, which was headquartered at um, Trinity and at Wheaton, really, that movement wasn't a necessarily uh, feeder in all senses— uh, for neo-Thomism of today, of 2022. But I think those two strands, along with the Evangelicals and Catholics Together project, that's another thread from the 90s that then bleeds into the aughts and into the 2010s and beyond. That was all present, though. Mm-hmm. But what what I'm trying to say is I didn't see it in the Reformed and Baptist and Southern Baptist world at that time. And it's only been in the last few years that all of a sudden, like— Someone flipped a switch, and all of a sudden, Aquinas has gone from obviously an erudite and brilliant thinker, a deep philosopher, one who made some contributions on just war theory and some other matters and says true things throughout his corpus, and yet has never been embraced by the mainstream modern reformed movement and never been the go-to theologian outside of R.C. Sproul, really, who had this kind of passion for Aquinas that largely bled into apologetics, classical apologetics for him, it seems to me. He didn't really reference Aquinas that much in his more ministry-related and theology-related talks, but when it came to apologetics, he would, Sproul would, lean more on on the Thomistic tradition. So outside of of R.C. Sproul, there's not a lot you can find, aside from Norm Geisler, Mm -hmm. I should add, I hasten to add, and Southern Evangelical Seminary. But again, what I'm talking about is kind of the Reformed and Baptist mainstream. 
And it's only been in the last few years that that's really peaked almost out of nowhere. That's been my impression as well, because when I was looking back, when I think about my time at Trinity, so I was there between 2008 to 2010, and I was taking some like early church and medieval courses. And I remember the way we were talking about the medievals was sort of like, we have to retrieve all this like great wisdom. And I was like, well, yeah, of course. Uh, and then when I started my PhD, again, I was doing the same thing of like, yeah, you know, just retrieve all this great wisdom. And I noticed a lot of people going, we have to retrieve these infallible sources. And I was like, that's not, that's, I don't think these are infallible sources. Um, and so I started noticing a lot more during my PhD that various people were, what they said goes, and you have to really listen. And if you disagree, you're not in a good place um, or you're not going to a good place in the afterlife. I mean, there's, there's a lot of these kind of attitudes I saw. But what I'm, one of the things I'm curious about, though, is how do you think this happened? Like, like, how do you think we got to this point where evangelicals are claiming that we need Thomism to save us from, like, the idolatry of Biblicism? Well, still trying to take stock of it. It's such a bizarre claim. I don't honestly, to this minute, really at times know what to say. Because the thing about the Young Restless Reformed Project is that actually, as led by Mark Dever and others early on, it was very honestly, explicitly non-ecumenical and non-Catholic. Right. If you go back and you read—not that not that T4G or other outlets are everything, the be-all, end-all, especially for academic theology, but again, just as a paradigm for many of us, the leading Reformed paradigm, leading Baptist voices— their their documents, their early documents, a lot of the early talks, talks that I heard R.C. Sproul himself give at T4G in the early years, 06, 08, and so on, were, were not just tangentially not Catholic. They were actively defining themselves against that. And that's just fascinating. But I think you always have pendulum swings, right? Yeah. Uh, that's not a brilliant observation. That's a basic one. You have pendulum swings. So... What happened, I would say, with Reformed and conservative evangelicals is that they did not have a great deal of zeal or even taste for the medieval period. And so in your 20th century neo-evangelical contexts leading into the modern Reformed movement of the last 30, 40, 50 years, if you think about these different streams together, medievalism was not big. Anywhere, anytime you have that sort of undiscovered market— you're letting somebody then come in and make hay and say, oh, guess what? There's this entire forgotten era. And it turns out that it's not just the medievalists themselves with their sentence-by-sentence reason-driven formulations. They are actually the faithful custodians and stewards, even, even the bridge keepers themselves of the early church. And, by the way, and everyone loves this kind of spin, especially contrarians, the one you have heard is the boogeyman, Thomas Aquinas, is actually Gandalf. <laughs> and so I think there's been a lot of that sort of, oh, they were they were dwelling on the outer margins, in, in, banished to the outer darkness, and now we're bringing them in, and they're actually, they're actually way better than a lot of these complementarian obsessed theologians who are biblicists and exegetically driven to a fault and they don't even have historical theology sections in their system systematic theologies and so actually guys and here's a further kind of paradigm overturning that we all are are tempted toward uh, a lot of us especially in the academic world where what is trendy is cool mm-hmm. and what is paradigm overturning is cool oh and by the way um 
this is the very this is the very paradigm you need to embrace and if you don't embrace this paradigm actually you're going to be left out in the fundamentalist wilderness so those are some of the factors um retold in a kind of slightly goofy way it feels like it fits though because when i think back about like my my journey from like undergrad to finishing the phd a lot of these points i'm like yeah i got sucked into that rhetoric like i definitely got sucked into like we've been ignoring this huge, great intellectual tradition. How could we overlook this? You know, we need to be like getting back into Augustine. Like the, like this is really like what like kept uh, even like, you know, like, the, like the, the gospel going. Yeah, I got sucked into all of that at various points. So I, that seems accurate to me. The biblicism though, that, that's what's wild to me is sometimes I get accused of like biblicism and, and I'm sitting there going, most of the stuff I do is like deeply philosophical. Like, like my first book, mm-hmm. I've got some scripture like throughout, but I don't really give a biblical argument until the very end, and it's like two pages, uh, mm-hmm. and the, and then then people are like that's just biblicism. I'm like, two hundred pages of hardcore philosophical argument. Or bi- okay, cool. I understand. This is this is where we're going here. Um, so let's let's get on to something else here, though. So so one of the big complaints you've got against Thomism is about uh, soteriology or, or like the theory of salvation, and so you think there's going to be four central tenets to Thomas Aquinas's soteriology that you think conflict with sound biblical theology. And so I want to start with that first tenet of Aquinas' understanding of salvation, which is baptismal regeneration. So what is this Thomistic claim about baptismal generation? Well, um, Thomas claims that baptism washes your sin away. Thomas is in keeping with, frankly, the Catholic tradition. Uh, let, me just, let me just go way out on a limb here. Thomas Aquinas is a quintessentially Roman Catholic theologian. Ooh, shocking. Oh, the universe continues to, to motor on. <laughs> I thought it was going to explode with such a <laughs> radically weird claim. Um, yeah, Augustine taught baptismal regeneration. A lot of us would say in the case of Augustine, uh, I mean, he's walking a line, and Luther walks a line as well. Mm-hmm. So we're not just playing favorites with the guys we like. We, we take these things as they come. We take soteriological tenets very seriously. Uh, we guard the gospel. We guard the good deposit, 2 Timothy 1, 13 to 14. And we got to recognize that basically Augustine's theology of grace writ large, I would say, overcomes his doctrine of baptismal regeneration, I think. Again, that is not a small error. That's not like, oh, you got the tithing percentage wrong when you spoke to the church there and you wrote <laughs> it in your book. That's a big error. Big, big, big era, potentially salvation canceling. But I think, I think Augustine gets in. The door maybe brushes him on the way in. I think Luther gets in. He's he's even clearer than Augustine. But anyway, Aquinas uh, believes that baptism washes you and and regenerates you and begins, of course, sacramental soteriology. Uh, it's not the only step in Catholic uh, salvation, to be fair, but that's a vital one. You have to have it, basically. And right off the bat, therefore, we are on a very bad foot. And as we can talk about, I don't think Aquinas's thought itself overcomes that initial wrong step the way Augustine does and Luther does, uh, to give two examples. So, so you've been saying like it's a wrong step, like it's an error or mistake of some sort. Like what exactly is wrong with this baptismal regeneration? What is wrong with it is that baptism does nothing to regenerate you. The regeneration that comes is John 3 from the Spirit who blows as he wishes, driven by the decree and redemptive plan of God the Father uh, enacted in the Son. And so baptism does nothing to regenerate you. There is no work, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, that can regenerate you. Um, Regeneration is a sovereign work of God 
by which the Spirit quickens your heart to uh, to to live. <laughs> you live spiritually. You are you are you are born again, and um, you thus exercise faith in the Son of God and the Son of God alone. His death and His resurrection being the means by which your sin is atoned for, and you thus enter eternal life. So when we're talking about baptismal regeneration in the hands of Aquinas in the Catholic tradition, we're talking about baptism as a as a sacramental work that the church performs, and there is no such teaching anywhere in Scripture. Baptism has no such ability. I, it, it'd be nice if it did, in a sense, if we could regenerate people through baptism, but we have no ability to do so. Mm. Okay, so, so your problem with it is it conflicts with Biblicism. Is that the big idea? Like a... <laughs> Yes. Yeah. So let's. Yes, that's the problem. So let, let's look at the next tenet of uh, of Aquinas's theory of salvation. So it's a uh, justification by infusion. So just just tell me what justification by infusion is. Um, so Aquinas argues in different places, and let us just very quickly say this: Aquinas says different things. Aquinas is famous for saying one thing and then saying another and has a lot of pages and a lot of words. And so you can find quotes where he sounds Protestant, okay, when it comes to justification, as if it is the washing. That, that is when you're, you are justified in the moment of faith. But then he also talks about justification as an effect. And that effectively means that justification is a principle or a little engine, if you will, planted in you that then causes you to produce works that cooperate with the grace of God in your salvation, and in biblical terms, um, now we've got to we've got to speak really, really carefully. Theology turns on very fine distinctions. It is, of course, the case that God's grace will produce good works, um, but it is in no way the case biblically that even your 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 best God produced works help to justify you. They flow out of your justification. They are after your justification. And so um, in, in tinkering with justification and in promoting very clearly justification by infusion, which is the common Roman Catholic position, Aquinas is giving us an unbiblical doctrine of justification. And if you give people an unbiblical doctrine of justification, they cannot be justified by faith alone. Mm. Okay, so it's, it seems like a serious problem, at least from my like biblicist perspective. So, uh, you know, because like, I, I, I kind of want to have the, like the Bible be my major authority in, in the, when I'm doing my theology, but I don't know. Those are details, I guess. Um, so let's look at the third tenet yep. of, of Aquinas' soteriology. So you've got this, these acts of, of penance. So just tell me what these acts of penance are. So acts of penance for Aquinas are the good works that you do, often in keeping with the teaching of the Catholic Church, and those those works actually take away the pollution of sin. So Aquinas, in talking about penance, just for people to be uh, unconfused about this, is not talking about, again, the good works that flow from salvation that God effects in us. No, sacraments, uh, Aquinas says, work as instruments of the divine power, and what he means is that they effect salvation as they are performed by the priest. So, when a priest performs the sacrament of penance, this is me synthesizing, mm-hmm. sin is removed, sin is taken away. Penance is not just a symbolic act, then, for for Aquinas. Uh, in penance, God absolves from sin, he writes, and forgives sin authoritatively. And priests do that ministerially. So, through the working of the priest, through the working of the sacrament of the church, sins are taken away. You come away clean uh, through penance. 
Okay, so that's what penance is, right? Okay, so now what what do you not like about penance? Uh, everything. Okay. Um, <laughs> there there is no way that um, an act of penance, a sacramental act, can take away sin. This is in direct contradiction to the biblical understanding of the cross. It is Colossians two thirteen to fifteen at the at the cross where our debt, our record of debt, is nailed and taken away and overcome. Uh, it is not through any ritual performance of the Catholic Church or anything else. I mean, Aquinas goes so far as to say, and I quote this uh, in a recent article in in a journal entitled Pro Pastor. This is what my seminary, the seminary I work at, Grace Bible Theological Seminary, just produced, the journal Pro Pastor on Aquinas. And in it, I write an article on this, and Aquinas says, after sin, the sacrament of penance is necessary for salvation, even as bodily medicine after man has contracted a dangerous disease. This is just an assault on the cross. I don't know what else to say. I used to not be in weird, biblicist, fundamentalistic uh, territory for saying such things. This, these are what, what I am saying is just boilerplate. Mm-hmm. It's reformed and honestly, even conservative evangelical boilerplate. It's no brilliant insight into Thomas Aquinas. Neither does it even require some harvest of 17 years reading only Aquinas every day until your eyes bleed. It's right there for the taking. Aquinas is saying what Catholics teach and, and Catholics tragically teach. And I say this without any heat or any hatred of Catholics. I want Catholics to know the true gospel. I love Catholics. I want to preach the truth and love to them. I know many Catholics who have been born again. Uh, I, I further, in a common grace sense, am thankful for uh, Catholic witness in the uh, Catholic, you know, voices in the public square and these sorts of things and agree with them on a number of issues ethically and morally. And, uh, the, the, you know, the way they raise their families is often fun and, and, and um, encouraging to see. And again, in, all in a common grace sense, there's a lot, of, lot to say there. But fundamentally, this doctrine of salvation is just not biblical. And it is not sound. And it is, as I say, going back now to this specific matter, uh, an assault on the cross, because it is at the cross alone that our sins are washed and forgiven and take a, taken away. So penance effectively leaves some of the work for Christ to do and some of the work for the priest to do in the performance of the sacrament. And that is, that is blasphemy. I want, I want to make sure that the audience follows something really, really important here. So you're not saying that like good works, like you're not saying like don't do good works, obviously, but you're talking about in terms of like salvation, like what saves you is Jesus and his work, not my work. Is that kind of, is, I mean, that's the claim you're trying to make here, right? That is exactly right. Uh, faith without works is dead, James 2. And what James means by that is if you make a profession of faith and then there is no fruit of your faith, to use a, a, another metaphor mm-hmm. that the Bible uses, Galatians 5, to 23 is just one place, uh, the fruit of the Spirit. If there's a claim that you are saved, but, but there is no fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 or, or no works, James 2, then your faith is dead. It's not true faith. Uh, you, you're not the, the true tree. You're, you are a diseased tree. You're a dead tree. So what happens is when you are saved, when you are born again, when you are regenerate, and thus you exercise saving faith in Christ and Christ alone— there will always be godly works that follow. There are always going to be acts of obedience. There is always going to be, here's one major work of God in our lives, real confession and repentance of sin uh, rooted in sorrow over our sin. We don't become sinless uh, when we are born again, when we become a Christian. We actually now enter into a great struggle and battle all our days with sin. And James 3, 2 says that we all stumble 
in many ways. So we are not teaching a kind of perfectionistic Reformed theology Mm -hmm. here, where if you get saved, um, you're so saved, uh, you don't need to do anything, you don't need to produce good works, and you don't need to produce repentance. Luther put it well, the whole of the Christian life is a life of repentance. Every day is a day of repentance. And repentance, by the way, just to get a little bit spiritual and and uh, applicational for just a sec. Mm-hmm, sure. Repentance is is not a defeat for us. We feel defeated when someone calls us out in our sin. We feel um, morose and self pitying. We all do. At least at least many of us. I do. Uh, you know when when we're caught out. But actually, when God is exposing our sin and then leading us to confession and repentance before God and man, um, that is actually the moment of hope. That is the moment of victory. That is what a powerful cross and a powerful resurrection achieves. That is what belief in that cross and resurrection affects in your heart. Uh, it means that um, now the power of sin is broken. You still have to battle it, but it's broken. And so all this means that, yes, faith uh, is not against works. Faith produces works. But here again, the works in no way cooperate with the saving faith to justify us or pronounce us righteous in God's court. I'm tempted to say amen, but in my denomination that shouting amen is too charismatic, so we don't do that sort of thing. We just kind of quietly go, mm, mm-hmm, yes, of course, of course. Just just gently nod. Yes, just yes. gently nod. If you put a hand up, that's okay sometimes, but you gotta, you got to be really sparing when you do that. So, <laughs> so let's, uh, let's look at the final tenet of Aquinas' soteriology. So it's indulgences. So uh, indulge me with the details on indulgence. Very nice. Well, Aquinas, again, is a Catholic theologian. He's working several hundred years, about 300 years before the Reformation. And, and of course, what kicks the Reformation off? The reason you and I are talking today under the banner at some level of Protestantism is because one man, in God's sheer grace, took issue, finally had it, with indulgences and many other practices as well. But it was really indulgences that that just um, spurred Luther on to speak up and uh, enact the great gospel discovery that was the Reformation. Uh, And by the way, a lot of this movement today that uh, is playing out in the Evangelical Academy is a displacing of the Reformation with the medieval period. And so we're essentially sliding out of a reformational paradigm, which is to say a biblical paradigm, because there's so much biblical and gospel recovery in the Reformation, into a medievalist and Catholic paradigm. And so that's a broader issue even than what you and I are talking about right now on this particular podcast and these soteriological matters. And that is something that I know you have seminarians and professors and pastors listening to your podcast. That is something that everyone needs to think about very carefully, even if they're coming in and they're thinking, this strand guy, I disagree with him. I don't like what he says for these reasons. Forget me. Think about the paradigm that is is being promoted uh, in this day and age and um, whether it is a sound paradigm. So in the Reformation, there is this kickback against indulgences. Aquinas loves indulgences. Aquinas thinks that um, indulgences, he writes, hold good both in the church's court and in the judgment of God. And what an indulgence amounts to, uh, based on the treasury of merit, basically the pooled good works of Jesus and Mary and everybody else in the Catholic Church, is that there's remission of punishment uh, that remains after contrition, absolution, and confession. So when you purchase, as the years go by in medieval Catholic circles, an indulgence, you are, again, you're purchasing your salvation. You're purchasing a for, a, a plenary forgiveness of sin. It's basically the issue. Now, in one sense, it would be nice if I could just, you know, give a couple bucks here or there and be like, all right, cool, I've got, I've got my salvation secure. But 
but but you're going to say these are unacceptable. Like uh, just the indulgences is a very serious problem. So mm-hmm. what exactly is the problem with indulgences? <laughs> um, it's a good question from you. It tempts. You're tempting me. Don't <laughs> tempt me, Frodo. You're tempting me because everything about indulgences is wrong. If you are a seminarian in a Baptist or evangelical school, and a theologian who loves and promotes indulgences is being presented to you as a trusted and sound guide, you are in dangerous territory. You are in danger because this is an absolute reversal of the truth of gospel grace. There is no purchasing of forgiveness. If there was Simon the magician in the book of Acts should not have been rebuked. <laughs> he should not have been, um, you know, seen as unsound, which he was. Uh, he, that's that's a form, exactly a form of what he was trying to do. He was trying to bottle and sell gospel power. Mm. There is no ability to pool merit uh, from Christ and the saints and the best people in the Catholic Church and so on. Uh, there's no treasury of merit. Uh, as as Aquinas believed there was, and many Catholic theologians do. And there is no transfer of forgiveness from any non-Christ person to another. Christ alone is the one who has won our salvation and who has lived a perfect life and has recapitulated Israel. And so it is very much indeed <laughs> the righteousness of Christ that is credited to our account through justification by faith alone. Uh, but we must stop there. There is no one else contributing to that bank account. That bank account is uh, an infinitely gracious bank account. It is nothing less than a divine bank account. And the one who has made every deposit in it, the only deposits that matter is, is Jesus Christ. But no one can find salvation other than calling on the name of Jesus Christ. There is no ability for any church, forget the Catholic Church, any church to sell a pardon of sin. But Aquinas thought that was great. And and what I mean here, Ryan, is that I think I'm probably sufficiently clear already, but just to underline here and, and wrap this up, mm-hmm. this isn't just an aberration. This isn't like, oh, your, your eschatology, you know, is verging a little bit into some interesting territory there, and maybe you're picking up a couple ideas you shouldn't. No, this is a demonstrative precept, by which I mean— if you think that th- that indulgences can be granted by the church, you are so far afield of the biblical gospel, I really don't know where to start. Mm. You have completely misunderstood the gospel. The church cannot grant pardons. You are pardoned in the moment of saving faith. Hmm. Okay, so so for a while now, we've, we've just kind of been railing against Aquinas' doctrine of salvation and just arguing that it's in conflict with Scripture. But there's going to be a lot of people listening who are thinking, you know, who cares? Like, you know, I can just kind of reject Aquinas' doctrine of salvation, um, but I can keep his understanding of God. Like, you know, so what would you say in response to that? Like, I mean, do you really think that I can just keep Aquinas' doctrine of God and just reject other parts of his theology, like his doctrine of salvation? Can these things come apart? I don't think you can pull them apart. I do think, you know, you can read theologians in different areas, of course, Aquinas is one we can read, yes, but I do think that, uh, but you read him very carefully, and you do not read him under the banner of 
Protestant's greatest theologian or something like this. Absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> when it comes to Aquinas, he can be read as a Catholic voice. This is what I would say. But he must not be read as, again, a trustworthy guide. And the way he is being brought into the church today matters greatly for what we're talking about here. And let me connect these dots as I do in this article I wrote for Pro Pastor. The way Aquinas is being accessed today is that his theology proper is really, really good. And the church, according to Matthew Barrett and others, has modernized and corrupted its doctrine of God. And so the way to flush out this very bad modern theology proper is to then is to take it out of course to actually flush it out and then and then graft in Aquinas's theology proper with its focus on simplicity and other matters that we could talk about that's 16 other podcast episodes mm-hmm. and so what is argued what is assumed there and rarely articulated or even discussed is that you can swap in Aquinas's theology proper, and you don't have anything really to worry about in terms of any connection between his theology proper and his soteriology. When I would argue that the soteriology reveals the theology proper, and the theology proper is dependent, at least in many respects, on an unsound soteriology. To the extent that if somebody has an unsound soteriology, they may say true things in any number of theological categories. Let's not misunderstand. They may. Sure. But they are not, at the very least, to be presented to seminarians and church members and the broader church as a trustworthy guide. Um, because Aquinas' soteriology, this is, this is to put it all in a nutshell, everything I'm trying to say here, Aquinas' soteriology reveals that he does not know the biblical God. So I want to pick up on, on, on this kind of statement, because you had a similar kind of statement in your pro-pastor paper. So I've got this really spicy quote that I, I want to read here. So you're, you say this about the Thomistic understanding of God. So here's the quote you have. So it says, in the end, a different being created by man with different prerogatives, different standards, and a different soteriology stands where the biblical God should be. So like that's a that's a really in your face kind of statement, which I, which I love that sort of stuff. Uh, I find it very entertaining. But could you maybe like elaborate a bit more, like what you were thinking there? Well, I'm not in truth. I'm not trying to be spicy. I'm not sure. trying to be funny. I'm not trying to be salacious. Um, it's it was a painful article to write. This is a painful conversation to have uh, on numerous levels, several of which I do not need to elaborate on. So. I would much rather someone else take this shift <laughs> and write about this issue. But the stakes are that high. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not railing against Aquinas. It's not trying to be spicy for spiciness's sake. It is saying to the church, you, you can't have this both ways. You can't say we need to recover this theologian, and he really is you know, the, the theologian that we did not know we needed, but we desperately do. He needs to be front and center. We need to reframe. We need to, to the extent that, I mean, this is just bonkers what is happening today. We need to reframe conservative evangelical seminaries around a Thomistic paradigm. Uh, we, we need to effectively make historical theology, a particular read on it, that is, the discipline of disciplines in our seminaries, in our Bible colleges, in our universities. 
we need to remove exegesis, which if you do it badly leads to biblicism from from first place in our schools, and we need to start with historical and philosophical theology. I, I do not know if my peers, again, whether they end up agreeing with me on all facets of this discussion or the Trinity or other matters, I do not know if my peers are awake to see just how radical these proposals from the neo-Thomists are. This will amount to uh, the medievalization of our seminaries and colleges. And um, all of this at base goes back to, did this man know God? Forget about whether he's an erudite thinker and writer. He is. It goes back to, does his teaching actually yield knowledge of the biblical God through biblical salvation? And there has been, Ryan, I think this is what you're getting at, there has been a lot of fudging when it has come to Aquinas Mm -hmm. in years past. A lot of people would kind of not warm to him, not really give him a lot of attention, not write about him a lot, not engage him a lot. I'm talking about in the Reformed and conservative evangelical world, but would kind of just sort of play nice and move away and say, well, he had a big vision of grace. I don't know how it all works out. He's probably in the kingdom, but, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to look too hard at his theology. I'm going to kind of, uh, you know, just push back from the table a little bit and grade on a curve. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing, Ryan, when you read him on soteriology, you are faced with a real dilemma. This is not this is why I surfaced Augustine and Luther earlier. Mm-hmm. Does their theology of soteriology overcome baptismal regeneration, for example? That, that's a conversation we can have, we should have. I would argue yes, certainly with Luther, and I think with Augustine, yes. But, um, but with Aquinas, it, it does not. It, it is not overcome. Mm. And thus, how do I end up saying you have unsound soteriology, and if you have unsound soteriology, people don't get saved through it, but then you are— you know the biblical God. How do I end up with that conclusion? Now, I see the point because you're right. The way that a lot of the Southern Baptists right now are packaging and selling Aquinas, it really is like he is the end-all, be-all, like the absolute guide to truth. And what you're pointing out is there's a lot of stuff here that's, that's very unbiblical. Like, why don't we just look at Aquinas as a fallible man who was trying to understand these things? Why don't we look at him like, why don't we present him like that? That, that seems more healthy to me. But the way we're presenting it, it's it's bizarre in my mind. Um, it really does. I, I, I do I do feel a lot of uh, a lot of truth to what you're saying here, but but I want to I want to consider an objection though uh, to your work on, a, on 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 Thomism. So a lot of people they keep saying you're mischaracterizing Thomism, and so they might say like, look look, I know that you have given these explicit quotations of Aquinas saying all of those things that Reformed Thomists don't want to admit Aquinas actually said. But don't you think that like directly quoting Aquinas saying all of those things, don't you think that's like a mischaracterization somehow of Aquinas? So how would you respond to this accusation that you're just constantly misrepresenting Aquinas? Um, (laughs) I don't know. Whatever (laughs) cleverness I have deserts me in trying to answer your question because it's bizarre when people don't like you quoting a theologian's words back to them. Again, Barrett made a claim in a journal recently that 88% of Thomas evangelicals have no trouble with and can agree with. And um, Whoa, that's a really high number. That's an extremely high number. And it's a number that it's so high. It's a number that is so high it got my attention and others' attention. And it, part of what we do in this journal, Pro Pastor, which is accessible at gbtseminary.org slash gbts hyphen 
journal, ProPastor it's called. Yeah, ProPastor, and it's freely available, so there's no paywall. There's no paywall. It's freely downloadable. What we do at the end of this journal is we give 20 different areas of theology in which Aquinas is unsound. We go through 20 different, and there's 20 different quotations. We're not just saying we don't like him here. Um, doctrine of Scripture, Doctrine of God, Doctrine of Man, Doctrine of Salvation, Doctrine of Sacraments, um, Doctrine of the Church, uh, Doctrine of the Christian Life, and so on and so forth. And we could have done more. The most fair thing you can do in theological discussion and disputation is, is accurately quote someone else's work and engage it. And that's what I have tried to do. That what I am doing does not fit with the airbrushed glow-up that Thomas Aquinas is receiving weirdly from conservative evangelicals, Baptists, and Reformed peers uh, in the Reformed Baptist world. Now all of a sudden Aquinas is, is um, the guide we need as well. So this is a bizarre moment. I think it is a reaction against uh, theistic personalism at some level, and I think it is a pendulum swing. I don't think it's going to last. It's kind of like how everybody was talking about speech act theory when I was in seminary. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't know if you remember this. I but do. Like, okay, every third book was about speech act theory at the bookstore, mm-hmm. and now no. I, I say it to seminarians, Ryan, no joke. I say, who has heard of speech act theory to my classes? Maybe one hand goes up. <laughs> it's gone. So I think we're going through a scholastic summer or spring storm. Mm-hmm. It's hot. You can sell books off of trends and stuff, and it's exciting, and there's paradigm overturning going on. But if you go to the words of Aquinas— he is as Catholic as the local Catholic priest. He is as Catholic as the modern Pope. What did Pope Francis say recently in a in a September gathering of the Catholic Church? He said, "Go to Thomas." Pope Francis said, "Go to go to Thomas." This isn't a new instinct. Like yeah. Thomas, Th- the Summa was on the desk at the sessions of the Council of Trent in formulating over. Uh, an over 20-year response to the just about to the Reformation doctrine, along with the Bible. It was the Summa and the Bible. So this is a truly bizarre moment when my evangelical peers, professing evangelical peers, are docking me for quoting Aquinas's Catholic doctrine of salvation, thoroughly Catholic to the core, thoroughly synergistic and cooperationistic, such that it is not a sound doctrine of salvation. It is not a saving doctrine of salvation. Someone can be a Catholic and be saved, but you have to be saved, at least in a good number of cases with regard to Catholic formal theology, against the Church's doctrine. You have to overcome Catholic soteriology as a Catholic to be saved. And so it is bizarre and troubling and very sad to me that, that Thomism is uh, being mainstreamed and platformed. So I've just got two more questions for you, and I think I already got to know the answer to this next question, but I just still want to get it out there. So do do you worry that like this current obsession among evangelicals, and in particular Southern Baptists with Aquinas, do you, do you think it verges like on an unhealthy obsession? Oh yes, definitely. It's um, it's shocking. I I don't know what accounts for it. Ultimately, I can trace some of those movements that we talked about earlier in the mm-hmm. podcast. I think that there are a few things in play. I think that we are living out the academicization of the evangelical movement. This is a trend that recurs in church history. You have the Reformation in Germany in the mid-1500s. Then you then it 
then you have a kind of scholasticization of German Protestantism. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you have a pietistic movement that then develops, and um, and then trends go on from there. Later, that in similar eras, you have the Enlightenment developing, and so the Church is frequently in this kind of spin cycle where it goes from different denominations, different groups, different locations go from, let's say, a sound doctrinal position, a recovery of the gospel, that not infrequently leads to a kind of high theology, an arid theology, a scholasticizing tendency that is really exciting Mm -hmm. uh, to a lot of younger types, and that then leads to um, a kind of pietism in the church, where the church overreacts and says, we don't need all this theology, we need love and a good heart. And and that only feeds that scholasticizing instinct more among the young, because in some cases they are rightly hungry for strong, strong doctrine, deep thinking, oh, yeah. these sorts of things. And so they grab onto this dominant intellectual paradigm that seems so consistent and strong, and it's not what they heard, and it's new, and it's exciting. I I watched this happen in Kansas City. I watched it happen to a number of younger types who hadn't had a lot of deep thinking in their background. And um, this is something that recurs, though. This isn't actually new as a shift. It's old. It's an ancient shift. And I think it's part of what is happening. You didn't have any real church history, let's say, uh, read or talked about in your small Baptist church in your background, and and you didn't really have anyone to talk theology with, and so you go to these these schools now, and it's really exciting to you because there's all this fervent discussion of high ideas, and uh, furthermore, you can get accredited in it. You can get you can get degrees, and you can have a doctor in front of your name, and and you can at some level almost embrace a, an almost Gnostic paradigm here where. You're part of. You're not any longer with the Bush League Christians. You're with the high elite Christians, and um, those biblicist fundamentalist pastors of your background. You don't really have much zeal for for them, much love for them. There's also so there's that tendency in our seminaries and our colleges today. There's also an ecumenical tendency that isn't new and has been there. And it seems like few people really glimpse the danger of it, but that is a major danger of Thomism. Even if somebody does find truths in Aquinas, that you would then embrace this paradigm, and this paradigm would lead you out of a sound love of the true biblical God and the true biblical gospel. And I have to also say, there's a push away from, I would say, biblical theology proper and biblical Trinitarianism. And here again, that earlier dimension kicks in because your sort of verse-by-verse doctrine of the Trinity can feel really thin Mm -hmm. and weak compared to this great tradition hermeneutic with all these documents and and, um, discussions behind it. If you're not careful, you can actually end up with a Greek god you can end up thinking that the paradigm against which the biblical God needs to measure up is the God of Aristotle and Plato. And bizarrely, again, I keep using that word, that's exactly what's being offered to seminarians and pastors and younger Christians today, a Christian Platonism, Aristotelian uh, thinking. And I just have to put it on record here at the end of our conversation. Mm -hmm. Our God is not the Greek God. 
Our God is not the, the God of the Greek philosophers. Our God does not have to measure up to what the Greek philosophers say. The Greek philosophers don't have anything to do with the formation of our doctrine. They are not the governor on Christian theology. Plato and Aristotle and others were brilliant men, and you can read their works and and gain common grace insights in different ways, but they are not the arbiter of biblical truth or the biblical God. Are we got to, guys, 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 we got to, we got to get our doctrines as close as we can to the philosophers or else, or else what? I don't know, but there seems to be this momentum in that direction. Our God does overlap with different religions' conception of the divine in different ways. Let that be said, yes. But the biblical God is not a stone deity. The biblical God is not unrelational. The biblical God is not impersonal. The things that are being said about the Christian God today are shocking. And um, we've got to just make sure that um, we don't embrace a medievalist theology proper that robs us of a biblical theology proper, where, for example, 1 Peter 5, 7 is true. Our God cares for us. We cast Mm -hmm. our cares on him because he cares for us. We have a caring God. We have a loving God. Is is God a God of human passions? Not in the least. We must observe the creator-creature distinction, and yet our God burns against sin, and our God, most of all, the Bible reveals— draws near to sinners out of genuine love and compassion and mercy and tenderness. And and all that is in the balance right now. So I want to give you the final word on this. So what what do you think is the best solution to the current like evangelical obsession with Thomism? I mean is it is it just reading the Bible more? Is it like well like what what do you think what do we got to do here? I think we've got to reject medievalism as the paradigm. And I think we've got to not embrace a Catholic hermeneutic of doctrine, where doctrine is locked in, in basically an inerrant way, through the creeds, confessions, and then the medieval synthesis. Mm -hmm. We've got to go back to the paradigm that past generations of Reformed and Baptist seminarians and collegians were taught— which is that there is much to harvest in the early church, including the the creeds and confessions. We're so thankful for them. Um, there's so much standardized and worked out and and given us um, as a as a theological harvest in the early church. And and there's even in the medieval period um, a lot of fascinating reason driven thinking going on. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. In the Christian tradition. And we don't need to just cancel that period or mark an X over it and move on unto the Reformation. But we, we, we must not, I would say, miss sight of the fact that the great tradition paradigm is basically a Catholic paradigm with some Protestant doctrines sprinkled in on top, uh, like Jimmy's on your ice cream cone. Mm-hmm. And um, that is extremely dangerous. I mean, if, if you grant that, if, if you embrace that in your method, you are on your way to Rome. You may not get there. God may keep you from, from doing that. He, he has. But this is what we have seen at Southern Evangelical Seminary, for example, in the evangelical and Protestant world. So 
what we need to do, Ryan, I would argue overall, there's lots of things to do. We need to not be trendy. We need to not care about what the broader academy thinks about us. We need to not think that Protestants and Catholics are the same. Um, We we need to to not be lured by a kind of high intellectualism that causes us, ironically, to actually not really love the church anymore, or at least uh, the fundamentalist biblicists. Uh, And by the way, there's just scorn and rancor and just bitter meanness on social media. I'm not talking about disagreement, Ryan. I'm not even talking about consequential just, and mean, serious disagreement. You're talking about actual just like mudslinging and just like you're, you don't have like faith. And like, I mean, it's just, it's, it's the ugliness has been what's shocked me the most over the last few years. Uh, it really is a very ugly. The viciousness with which the, the guys embracing a form of neo-Thomism are reacting to those who challenge them is shocking and um we all stumble in many ways man my heart my heart goes awry but i would just urge us all to 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 take fresh stock of our hearts not just our minds the the, the truths you and i have been discussing but our mm-hmm. hearts maybe we do continue to end up disagreeing on how much Thomism we can embrace but like do we need to savage james white do we need to pastors get online and just act like high school schoolboys in the cafeteria room about the other side we all all of us all of us have unclean hands and have much to repent of me included but um i i i think that's something to watch out for but at the but the the major thing in this rambling answer is don't embrace a catholic method don't embrace basically an inerrantist read of the creeds confessions, Catholic Church, and the medieval synthesis. Reject it for a strong appreciation of the historical church leading into a reformational paradigm that is then, in historical terms anyway, uh, a centering element for us. That's what I would say. And and don't be scared of—sorry, Ryan, sorry, I yeah. keep rambling—and don't be scared of God— leading his church to new, not new light, but discovery of fresh truth, of of the biblical truth, over the years. That's the weird thing. These guys are all writing their books in 2021 and 22, and I'm sure there's many to come in 23, 24, 25, and on, Mm -hmm. and yet they're all saying you must go back, 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 back. But actually, when you look at different doctrines, the Doctrine of the Atonement, for example, you recognize, no, penal substitution wasn't only believed in the 16th century by the Reformers, but it is largely the last... 500 years that has featured a harvest of writing on penal substitution and a real recovery of it. That's just one example. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're, the water's being poisoned against modern theology, by which I mean um, theology that builds off of faithful theology from Scripture and, and then filtered through the church of the last roughly 2,000 years. But we must not think, oh, if there's a theologian who wrote about the Trinity oh, in the late 19th century, well, well, don't even read it. Just read what the guys wrote in 260 A.D. Because, poof, the modern period, you can't even read. You shouldn't, you shouldn't even read Charles Hodge on this stuff. You shouldn't even read J.I. Packer on theology proper. What you should do is read my book published in 2022 right. <laughs> that talks about 310 AD. Yeah. There is tremendous and unrealized irony going on here. It is not wrong 
for us to benefit tremendously from Reformed, Baptist, and conservative evangelical theologians of the last 200 years, I would even say that is the period we are right to look to, not as the era we were all waiting for, but as a faithful era that has um, continued to glean truth from Scripture um, that wasn't always seen in past eras. Yeah, you know, there's brilliant minds in that time period. I mean, I love Augustus Strong. I love like Hodge, all those people you're mentioning. It's good, it's good stuff there. Yeah, I really do encourage people to go out and, and read all of those thinkers, uh, try to get a broader understanding of, of all the things we're talking about in today's episode. Um, but Owen, and, uh, yeah, go ahead. And they did not, I'm so sorry, yeah. they did not hijack the Trinity. No. They did not hijack and corrupt and poison theology proper. No, no um, not at all. Gr- Grudem and Ware did not do that more recently. Um, this this idea, this counter paradigm, has has gotten very very little challenge. Although it's starting to get more and more challenge. Um, Jared Oliphant has recently. Craig Carter's books are getting reviewed. You're pushing back. Others are. This is very much a brush fire that no one will be able to put out because the kind of classical theism, great tradition, neo-Thomism, whatever you want to call it, it's it's gone way out over its skis. And I don't say that in competition. I say that sadly. Mm-hmm. It's drifting from Scripture, and many are starting to see this. And so the trend is starting to, to be drawn back. But you must not buy the idea that these faithful men that you and I just mentioned, along with many others, Warfield, um, um, Burkhoff, uh, and, and others, Carson, Stott, um, that we could name, are these horrific evil guys, um, at least in theology proper, that we shouldn't read. You right. at, at least hear this if you're a seminarian and you're thinking these things through and you're hearing both sides and you're listening to podcasts on all sides and reading books. Those are not the bad guys, and they did not hijack the doctrine of the Trinity, and they did not hijack theology proper. And, and that is just unsound as a characterization. And I pray instead, here's my closing word, I'm sorry, here's sure. my closing word, that God will give us a spirit of humility and charity to learn from different voices. And folks on my side, yeah, we can, we can discuss some Aquinas. We can, we can do it. Our heads won't explode either. Um, but, um, but the other side can read some... <laughs> some Hodge or some Carson or whoever, some Ware, and um, they don't need to to make those men heretics. But there's a tremendous instinct to cancel people and embrace a kind of cultural framework for theological method rather than a Christian one. And the Christian method involves humility, charity, forgiveness, recognition that everyone stumbles, including theologians, and, a, and an interest in learning from others. Thank you, Ryan. And there you have it, another episode of the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes on philosophical theology. 